0: The diggers, uh, Abby Hoffman with the Yippies. Uh, a number of people talked about the end of scarcity and the idea: uh, let the machines do it. That uh, that uh, cybernetics, that uh, technology could replace alienating labor, and that um, as human beings we should reap the rewards of all that to have a uh, super partying uh, psychedelic. Uh, liberatory uh, experience uh, in life.
1: Hello, and welcome to the fourth installment of The KMO Show. I'm your host, KMO, and in this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Ken Goffman, better known as Are You Serious? And it just so happens that today I have been granted access to BARD, which is Google's answer to Microsoft and OpenAI's, what are they calling it? Bing slash Sydney, which is basically a large language model, which, you know, some people call an AI. And you can ask it questions, you can ask it to generate text, so I asked it. Compare Mondo 2000 magazine with Wired magazine. And this is what Bard said. Mondo 2000 and Wired were both magazines that cover technology and culture, but they have different approaches. Mondo 2000 was more anarchic and subversive, while Wired is more mainstream and polished. Mondo 2000 was also more focused on the underground and counterculture, while Wired is more focused on the mainstream and the emerging. Mondo 2000 was founded in 1989 by Ken Goffman and Jude Milhon, a.k.a. Are You Serious and St. Jude? Bard didn't provide that, that was me. Bard continues. Who were both part of the cyberpunk movement. The magazine was originally called Reality Hackers, but it was renamed Mondo 2000 in 1989. Mondo 2000 covered a wide range of topics, including virtual reality, smart drugs, and weird bands. It was known for its psychedelic and anarchic style. Wired was founded in 1993 by Louis Rossetto and Jane Metcalf. The magazine was originally called Wired News, but it was renamed Wired in 1994. Wired covers a wide range of topics, including technology, culture, and business. It is known for its mainstream and polished style. Mondo 2000 folded in 1999, actually it's 1998, while Wired is still in publication today. Both magazines have had a significant impact on the way we think about technology and culture. So, I guess that's a good enough introduction. Here's my conversation with Are You Serious? I am KMO. We're recording for the KMO show, and I'm here with Are You Serious? Hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. Uh, this is our second conversation. Our first was a few years ago and it was for a live radio show. And uh, I don't remember what we talked about. And that show is not archived.
0: Yeah, I think um, I was uh, drawing attention to a particular song called President Mussolini Makes the Planes Run on Time. Uh-huh. Um and I think it revolved around uh, that particular song by a band called Party Dogs that was remixed by a band called Friends at that time. For uh, it was originally uh, for the Ronald Reagan era. Uh, Reagan, at the beginning of uh, his term, uh, fired the uh, what do you call it the the people the air controllers. Mm, Right, That that control flies. It's kind of the first uh, salvo of anti-union activism, uh, along with uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, So I wrote a song called President Mussolini Makes the Planes Run on Time (laughs) uh, that uh, reflected on his uh, attitude towards air controls, which is uh, now an issue again. With uh, the trains. Yeah, well, trains and planes now are both, uh, are both are both are both uh, messing up. So, uh, uh, yeah, one one of the problems of uh, decentralization and and deconstruction of the federal government. One of the one of the nuances of uh, a complicated uh, period in which we're trying to figure out how to cope with new technology and and yeah, I guess every everything. Everything else we can possibly think of.
1: Well, yours is a name that I associate with uh, Mondo 2000 magazine yeah. and the early, early days of the World Wide Web. And even before yeah. the Web, you know, the the various incarnations of the Internet that um, that preceded the World Wide Web, like uh, Usenet and um, Internet Relay Chat and things like that. Um, well, and, well, and what? The well. Oh, the we're, well, we're the whole electronic the link. Hell, yes, oh, that
0: was my, that was the place. I, I think I started there in 1990, actually. Although Saint Jude, who uh, the only woman in the original hackers book by Stephen Levy, uh, was trying to get me uh, into uh, social networks. What did we call them back then? Bulletin boards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. even, even back before that, in the, in the late 1980s. She also dragged me to a rave in the late 1980s. Who knew there would be raves? It was all gay at that time in San Francisco, uh, as far as I know. Anyway.
1: Uh, uh, As I say, I remember your work uh, largely from the 1990s. And when I was in Japan in the early 90s, like 93, 94, I remember I had with me a copy of the book Uh, I have have it up here on Amazon. Mondo 2000, A User's Guide to the New Edge, Cyberpunk, Virtual Reality, Wet Wear, Designer Aphrodisiacs, Artificial Life, Techno-erotic Paganism, and and Then There's Not Room for the Full Title. <laughs> I don't know, don't know what came after that. That was published in 1992.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, as I, I mean, I recall uh, being on tour for it in 1993, but I guess it was officially in 1992. Sure. Yeah, as uh, as I was in tour on tour in uh, New York City, I learned that uh, we we're going to be featured in a Time magazine cover story that year. So it was kind of uh, the uh, the the last glory moment of uh, Mondo Two Thousand, really 19, 1993. It did it did peter on for a few more years after that. Um, yeah.
1: Well, the period was fun you describe book. it where you
0: describe it as petering
1: on. I remember that magazine as being rather it was beautifully designed. Uh, it was oh yeah. A high, you know, a high quality, like a fashion magazine, but you know, mm-hmm. a, sort of a high art fashion magazine, mm-hmm. but dealing with the types of topics that I was just, you know, listing in, in the title of the book. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, think about authors like Bruce Sterling and uh, Terrence McKenna and um, gosh, who else from that period?
0: John Shirley, um, Rudy Rucker. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, Timothy Leary was a regular writer for us. Yeah, there are there so many it's people who, whose names might not be as well known or might not have been as well known then. Mark Derry uh, used to write wonderful columns for us. Uh, very widely uh, known and respected writer today. Um, God, who can remember
1: Well, I was, you've written a book about that, that period. And I was just reading, I'm afraid I didn't get to the chapters you sent to me until just a few minutes ago. So I've just read a few paragraphs, but you you start off talking about how the, it's something I assume, you know, I associate with the 1990s, but you say that the, what would become the publishing empire of Mondo 2000 started in 1984 which mm-hmm. I was 16 at the time. I was certainly unaware of it. Uh, but then you say, really, this all, this all flowed out of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So I would invite you to uh, go back and, and talk about your experience of uh, the 1960s and the different trends and currents and people that eventually led to what we would later know as Mondo 2000.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, in the late 1960s, I was in high school, and uh, there seemed to be a revolution happening. Uh, it, uh, it, it sort of happened and it sort of fizzled depending on uh, how you interpret it. Um, but uh, there was this idea floating around at that time in the late 60s, uh, propagated largely by the group, the Diggers, who was, a they were an anarchist collective in San Francisco and New York City that used to run a free store and uh, allow people to bring stuff in to give away, and then people would take stuff out. There's a version of that going around now, actually, and much more more formal and and well-run, I'm sure. Uh, I'd have to look it up to see see, uh, where and what that is. But um, the diggers, uh, Abby Hoffman with the Yippies, uh, a number of people talked about the end of scarcity and the idea, uh, let the machines do it that uh, that uh, cybernetics, that uh, technology could replace alienating labor, and that um, as human beings, we should reap the rewards of all that to have a uh, super partying, uh, psychedelic, uh, liberatory uh, experience uh, in life. So... Uh, That was one of the ideas going around in the late 1960s. Uh, Stuart Brand, who would uh, end up being uh, one of the main proponents of the new digital culture and who uh, created the first Hackers Conference in 1984, was also on top of that notion and uh, uh, started the whole idea of tools for living with the uh, Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, Also, during that period, uh, William Burroughs was another... uh, proponent of uh, post-scarcity. I mean, there, there was a lot of that kind of stuff around. Um, so I, I opened the book, uh, one of the things I opened the book with is uh, a memory of my experience going to see the Living Theater, Julian Beck and the Living Theater in Ithaca, not far from where I grew up, um, I think in 1968. And it was a fabulous performance, but it was a litany of complaints about things you cannot do. I can't take my clothes off, I can't smoke marijuana, I can't cross borders without a passport. I thought that was very 1960s and not very 21st century where people are much more concerned with stopping people from doing things that they shouldn't do. But at that time, uh, it was uh, was very dynamic and everybody took their clothes off in in the audience. Uh, One of the things that happened is the actors would run off the stage grab people by their arms, and lift them up to their feet if they were just sitting around, which uh, people interpreted as liberatory at the time, but probably would uh, interpret as abuse today. So the culture has changed quite, quite a lot uh, since, since that time. But uh, Mondo in the 90s and High Frontiers reality hackers in the 1980s were sort of dragging that uh, feeling of uh the end of boundaries and uh of the liberatory possibilities of technology associated with counterculture uh that it creates something phenomenal and fantastic and uh, maybe mutate and take over the world to, to uh borrow the title of a book i wrote with saint jude milhan so um i hope that in some scrambled way helps to uh elucidate uh, how I was dragging the 60s into the 80s and 90s. High Frontiers was 1984. That's that's where it started. A lot of my uh, friends in the Bay Area will uh, remember High Frontiers. It actually uh, got to about 18,000 distribution, which was uh, we we're, were kind of superstars in the uh, zine scene already, uh, became uh, reality hackers, which was less popular than High Frontiers and then eventually became Mondo 2000, which uh, had uh, uh, some degree of uh, commercial success and distribution and so forth.
1: Well, you have been watching the trends that are of interest to me for about my entire life. You know, I didn't get interested in them until my early 20s. You know, I was born in 68 and by 68, you were already, you know, tuned into a lot of the things that uh, are of great interest to me now. I want to focus on the, the slogan, let the machines do it, mm-hmm. because we're in a period where um, artificial intelligence, after having you know been this overhyped technology that didn't really do a whole lot for a very long time, is suddenly erupting into public consciousness because it's it's gotten very good at creating images based on text prompts or text descriptions. And it's also gotten very good at carrying on conversations to the point where it really feels like there's somebody there at the other end. Yeah. And the sorts of work that it is taking on is, in many cases, the sorts of work that people associate with you know, spiritual pursuits or creative pursuits. It's not this alienating labor that we wanted to get up, you know, give up. It's uh painting and writing poetry and right. you know, writing screenplays right. and things. Right. Whereas a lot of the alienating labor, uh, your robotics has not, has not progressed as quickly as artificial intelligence. And humans are still needed to do a lot of physically demanding, uh, you know, dangerous and repetitive and largely unsatisfying sorts of work. So, um, yeah. Given your perspective, having watched these trends longer than I have, I have, how is the future shaping up for you?
0: Well, it is uh, very interesting and peculiar that uh, the evolution of AI is is focused on content rather than on production and, and work. And uh, this is a, I think, a reflection on where the money went. Um, it went away from. Uh, production technology—it went away from projects that are exterior, and all this money started chasing the internet. You know, back during the uh, it was the late '90s when they had the big stock boom and everybody uh, was minting billions of dollars out of out of nothing. Um, I, so that, that's where capital went. Capital went. Inside uh, into into virtual space, uh, as predicted by uh, Baudrillard, actually, and and some other people, that the material reality would be ignored. I mean, it already you could already see that in New York in the nineteen seventies. But um, so it's kind of disastrous. I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, the uh, the recent thing with the uh, chatbot uh, developed by Microsoft, where it became very emo. Uh, it became an angry, sad, weepy, uh, abused feeling chatbot, chat which I think is so interesting because what, what the bot must have been doing is scraping uh, from online how humans think. And what emerged was this self-pitying uh, angry <laughs> angry bot who uh, wanted to be wanted to be a real boy just like uh just like uh zuckerberg um so yeah i mean all, all that's strange and fascinating and, and kind of fun but also uh uh i mean i would say it's the wrong direction for saving human beings and bringing about uh the kind of uh, uh culture and uh, kind of uh, economic reality that uh, we would want to uh, exist in. But I mean, it's possibly too late. So at least we get to play by the AIs and the uh, shards of a declining country and a declining civilization and a declining species. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's that's my uplifting message for the moment, but don't stop trying.
1: Absolutely don't stop trying. And uh, I'm I'm somebody who had uh, allowed myself to get too focused on, you know, tales of impending doom for too long.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, I'm possibly I've swung too far in the other direction, but I don't have any use whatsoever for pessimistic talk anymore. And I don't really have any use for, um, you know, anti-natalism or uh, misanthropic talk talking about humans are a plague on the planet i'm, I'm just not interested in any of that stuff that's yeah no i as never as...
0: i never went for the anti the anti-human talk for sure yeah uh and i think that the uh cyber culture of the 90s uh, technoculture of the 90s uh, the uh, counterculture of the 60s and 70s was largely pro-human i mean there's there's always a uh It was kind of bipolar. Mondo was bipolar. Mondo was kind of a shift between uh, sort of a nihilistic, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, dystopian views and extremely utopian uh, optimistic views. And and we had that right from the beginning, and it continued throughout. I mean, in our first issue, uh, the cyberpunk issue of Mondo 2000, which was mostly... uh, hailed and also critiqued from the left for being uh, this kind of upbeat uh, uh, utopian techno uh, magazine. At the same time, we also had an interview with John Shirley in a pull quote in which he says that, you know, wires are stuck in the pleasure center of your brain and you just chuckle and while well, they're vivisecting you and reel out a length of your intestines. So, I mean, Mondo was, you know, the cyberpunk, cyberpunk was fairly dark, um, as cyberculture was in some ways fairly bright. Um, and, and there were those two wavering uh, things going on all at the same time. And I'm I, I still there, uh, you know, projecting both the, uh, the, the light and the dark, uh, today.
1: Parker in the chat writes, I remember buying a copy of Mondo 2000 in 1992 or 1993. Magazines showed a whole different world for me. This was around the same time I bought the premier issue of Wired magazine. And I'll just share my own personal uh, history. Uh, I was in Japan when the first issue of Wired came out. I saw it on a, um, you know, a shelf in a bookstore, I picked it up and I bought it. And for the price of buying one issue off the, um, you know, off the rack in Japan, I could subscribe for a whole year, even including, you know, overseas shipping. So from, I I took the mail-in card from that first issue and, uh, I subscribed and I was a subscriber to, to wired magazine, which it, didn't occur to me until I was just reviewing, you know, the timeline that Mondo 2000 predates Wired magazine. You, you cover sort of the same scene, but from a very different perspective. I wonder if you could reflect on maybe the, the relationship or, or lack thereof. There may have been no relationship, but, you know, the, the comparison to Wired magazine and also just the role that magazines used to play in our lives and, and don't really anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know which one to take on first. I mean, I, I used to I, I just said on Twitter, good old Twitter, um, that uh, I used to travel over 200 miles, I think, or over 190 miles sometimes from Binghamton, New York, where I lived, to New York City just to buy magazines. I would go to the East Village, I would buy Punk Magazine, I would buy all these uh, magazines. And, And there were pretty good magazine racks in Binghamton, but there were a few things like Punk and New York Rocker and stuff like that that I craved. So I mean magazines were were central to to life you could go to uh you could go to the 711 and buy high Times and the National Lampoon and Cream magazine in the 1970s you had a, a pretty vivid reflection of uh counterculture attitudes and and tropes that uh now uh, we just throw away on the internet that we don't even have time to to look at it we, we just uh, repeat the titles on twitter but never read them now you know um but the, at the time magazines were super important uh mondo mondo preceded wired uh, i mean there there were two different types of relationships to wired one was a public relationship in which uh, we ridiculed them as the monkeys, a, a corporate clone of Mondo 2000 made safe for uh, you know the, the hoi polloi and for advertisers and so forth. And then there was the other level at which uh, uh, they had been showing us their mock-up of what they were gonna do. And we were chatting with them and it was all kind of uh, buddy-buddy. And I mean, there was my personal feeling that it was pretty good,, uh, but also that it was definitely uh, too corporate friendly for for my uh, taste. Uh, I remember uh, there was uh, some huge corporate online thing going on at that time. I can't even remember what it was, but the the cover of Wired magazine had to ask if this company sucked or not. And then they had to ask if Newt Gingrich was a friend or an enemy. Uh, my, my attitude was not good towards uh, Newt Gingrich. Um, so, I mean, there was this distinction between Mondo sort of being left libertarian, left anarchist, and Warren being right libertarian and, and right anarchist. Uh, and there was an underlying... People didn't talk politics a lot in the 90s like they do now, but there was this underlying thing, this underlying tension. Um, Doug Rushkoff has actually theorized that Wired uh, existed, uh, was created by the Global Business Network and Nicholas Negroponte to bring down Mondo 2000, which I think Timothy Leary told some people, some Wired magazine people at a uh, sitting in a booth at some conference that the Wired was the CIA's answer to Mondo 2000. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I remain friends with uh, Lewis and Jane and Kevin Kelly and uh, all the people I mean, some of the I wrote for them within a, a year or two. So uh, I was a I was a traitor to the Mondo brand while I was still uh, a representative of, of the Mondo <laughs> brand. So, I mean, it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated relationship. And they, they have a pretty good online site now they have a, a pretty good british version of, of the magazine the magazine itself seems to be dead it's it's you know there's not much content to it anymore there's not much point and there are people who do magazines now do like real art magazines like like document and stuff like that really thick maybe once a year or twice a year publications that seem to uh that seem to thrive um but um yeah, I mean, a lot of people discovered us both at the same time. We were we were in in decline, internally, uh, by the time Wired was on on the rise.
1: Well, talk about that. Talk about the the winding down of Mondo Two Thousand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to say too much about it because you know the the people involved. There's a bit of, of it in the uh, book uh, Mondo Two Thousand. What was it the freaks in the machine, Mondo 2000, in late 20th century techno culture? But um, I mean, advertising was always a problem. There was an issue with paranoia that I I won't uh, pinpoint to any individual right now, uh, which uh, caused some harm. Uh, we were we were riding a great wave of publicity, and suddenly MTV was banned from the Mondo house. Um, so so there were there were a lot of uh, complexities. Um, and then showing up in Time Magazine in 1993, Gibson said that's a sign of of, of the, that, that's a signature of the end when you're on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, so who knows? Yeah. Um, but I um, mean, they continued to publish about one issue a year after 1993, and they were all really good. And I participated in, in most of them. Um, and finally, uh, there was this famous location in Berkeley that was called the Mondo House. It was a, really a, a, the neo-Gothic citadel high in the Berkeley Hills. as uh, It was repeatedly called by various media organs. The media loves to steal fra- phrases from one another and repeat them. Uh, but, that yeah, I mean, it really did look like the cover of a Blue Oyster Cult album. And, you know, there were a lot of, like, old like 1950s classic cars sitting outside and stuff like that um yeah uh so what was i talking about
1: <laughs> well i had asked you to talk about the the sort of unraveling of mondo yeah person.
0: i mean i, I don't i can talk. tell that you're you're very
1: sensitive to the um you know the other people involved and you, you don't want to pick any fights or point any fingers so i invite you yeah. to just talk about whatever you think is is relevant but also not going to you know, burn any bridges.
0: Well, I mean, it, in some ways, what Mondo was about declined uh, as the internet rose. You know, I we were talking about a world that was coming, and now the world was there, and um, it was, in some ways, more beautiful in fantasy than it was in reality. Uh, so the reality of uh, everybody getting online, it was sort of kludgy. It was uh, people weren't instantly becoming their own multimedia publishers, uh, broadcasters, and so forth. Now here we are. We're, we're, we made it. Uh, one of the things that Mondo was about was that the means of communication was being given to everybody. And we are here now um so that happened but it was happening slow at the time and it was kind of a the the feeling that utopia wasn't wasn't arriving you know uh, on time uh kind of kind of uh was a setback for the for the mondo uh vision but um i mean i i don't know i don't have a lot to say about that uh period of of, de- of decline with, uh, with Mondo. It was, I, I wrote a bunch of books. I, I did the, the Cyberpunk Handbook with St. Jude and How to Mutate and Take Over the World with St. Jude, which uh, started out as a project to tell uh, people to uh, create a game that would end up being published with hackers uh, telling people how to take over the world by hacking. Um, and the other aspect of it was mute, was uh, mutate, and transhumanists were going to tell us how to mutate. Uh, but nobody knew how to do any of those things, so it ended up being sort of a self-satire by myself and St. Jude, uh, which uh, was, the book was really loved by a handful of postmodern academics, but otherwise uh, sort of died a... Uh, Poorly distributed death. It was also designed wrong. I mean, that period after Mondo was a uh, period of difficulty for me personally, which makes it weird to to talk about. And uh, you know, I had a recording contract with Trent Reznors Nothing Records, and a record that wasn't re- released. And uh, there are all these kind of bitter, bitter things that uh, aren't really particularly relevant to people right now. Although I will say that uh, I have a, a great Mondo Vanilli project called I'm Against NFTs, uh, which will be online on March 20th uh, of this year and will be a, uh, a virtual reality created by Genie Mo, some friends of ours from Great Britain. So, uh, yeah, and I, I had a, mu- a music project that uh, didn't, uh, didn't end up going forward in the way that it uh, should have. Uh, thanks to uh, contractual complications. And and I guess Reznor not completely understanding the album, I owe you, babe. So how's that for adding some confusion to the narrative?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's jump ahead out of the 90s and into the uh, first decade of this century, Uh, I started podcasting in two thousand and six, and I think you probably started pretty early as well. Uh, what was what's the story of your podcasting career from the aughts?
0: Yeah, I can't remember the exact dates, but I had the Are You Serious show and Neophiles, um, and we had a lot of great great guests. We had a, a crew of three people who would uh, we would talk to each other about issues. And uh, then we would uh, get our, our guests on. Um, and I mean, it was trem- It was pretty popular and it was tremendously fun. Um, who did we have on there? We had Richard Hell. We had the uh, director, uh, Richard Hell from Richard Hell and the Voidoids, early New York punk rocker. Uh, we had the director who did Slackers, Richard, Richard Linklater. Uh, I don't know. We had so many great people on there and uh, we would talk in a very loose-lipped way about culture and politics in ways that uh, would probably get it canceled today, I would guess, you know. uh, uh, That's that's another part of, uh, that's another thing I I try to avoid, evade to the degree that I can the hypersensitivity of of the moment. I am a great uh, supporter of the idea that there is a thing that we could call social justice and and that it does relate to race and gender and so forth and then at the same time uh wanting to slap the be, be, you know tr- wanting to transition into tipper gore and slap warning signs on the foreheads of comedians is not my idea of liberation and uh i'm already wishing i hadn't said that so that's the environment that we're in today.
1: You know, if you look at the 19... sir, <laughs> so if you look at the 1950s uh, uh-huh. the the style of dress, the music that was popular is distinctly different from the 1960s. And then there's right. a clear evolution into the 70s, and then the 80s has its own its own vibe. And it seems like the 90s is sort of the last decade that really has a distinctive flavor like mm-hmm. the uh the aunts and the teens, and now the twenties that we seem kind of culturally stagnant, even though you know technology has changed a lot about how we relate to one another uh, it, it just doesn't seem like the the last couple of decades have that same sort of unique character what What do you make of that
0: yeah i mean i actually, in my last editorial for mondo in uh, nineteen ninety five I think it was in nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six I declared an end to zeitgeist. Uh, I, I said that Mondo had been on Zeitgeist magazine, but Zeitgeist had uh, come to an end, and that Generation X had, uh, had pretty much knocked it off with, uh, with, with, a, with a big smirk and a, a giant, yeah, whatever, never mind. Uh, and by the time we get into the uh, 21st century, I think, yeah, lost in cyberspace, pretty much where we are in terms of anybody trying to get a fix of what the culture is. Today, I mean, it's dispersed, and that was the intention. You know, the intention was to decentralize culture. Uh, to we called uh, high frontiers, and then reality hackers, and then Monday, two thousand, the be ribbon letter bomb to the core address of consensus reality. Uh, so the intention was to explode consensus reality, and I have expressed uh, uh, limited regrets about doing that. <laughs> And Doug Rushkoff's podcast, actually, I said I'm sorry for exploding consensus reality. He said it's your fault. I said, yeah, it's my fault, and um, not really, but uh, this is this is what has uh, taken place. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think reality is individualized. It's small group. It's uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, Anyway, it's distributed, uh, and there's not really an overall sense of of where we are. I have the idea, uh, which I'm giving away the end of my book, but I've already discussed this in public a number of times, that we already are in a singularity in the sense that um, the science fiction writer whose name is escaping me right now. who first described the singularity, uh, said that a singularity was when AIs become smarter than human beings, and after that, we can't predict what will happen or can't understand who we are. Werner Vinge is the name I was searching for. Um, and my claim now is that we're already, we've already been through a singularity, and the singularity is billions of people getting online. And we can't understand the cognitive effects And the social effects and the political effects of what has happened to us after that happened and we can't predict what will happen next and we can't you know we we can't understand the uh, neurological psychosis and since you like to be uh, positive maybe some evolutionary thing that might come from it ultimately. We can't understand any of what that is. So that's another kind of singularity. I know a number of people have talked about social singularities, including Mark Healy, who brought the raves from Great Britain to San Francisco. But uh, this is my my version of it. I think it's pretty valid.
1: So Carrie Long in the comments writes, Mondo 2000 was such a huge inspiration. I used to run this weird sci-fi cafe in Los Angeles that carried a torch for mondo two thousand style cyberculture. Timothy Leary joined us once for our Thursday night storytelling event. Of course, the theme that night was drug stories.
0: <laughs> I remember being there actually. I think during a uh, some kind of conference that was happening in Pasadena. I think uh, there was a party there, and uh, I was among the visitors. Uh, whoever was out there could respond to that, but I, I think I remember being being at their uh, at their place. Now, it's
1: funny you've mentioned raves a few times. Uh, I remember hearing about raves when I was living in Missouri, and uh, <laughs> then I moved to Seattle, and I finally got to go to a rave. But by the time I got to one, I was twenty eight years old, and you know the oldest person there. And I thought, yeah, at the time, I felt that I was too old that I'd missed it.
0: Hey, I was thirty-eight years old, thirty-nine years old. <laughs> yeah. So even with ecstasy, I was going home at four in the morning. Uh, you know, it's just, there were there were some great troopers who would make it uh, through the night. Yeah, it, it was an incredible uh, intervention of uh, psychedelia into uh, into modern culture that brought in a, a lot of young people. Yeah we were we were we were sponsors of a number of raves i don't even think we were asked necessarily we just saw our names on our name on the little uh, things that would go around those uh, nah. well i went
1: to a few different raves and some of them were i would say quite authentic you know very sort of seat of the pants uh, mm-hmm. and others were very very polished, organized business affairs, mm-hmm. you know, but with techno music and flashing lights and uh, yeah. glow sticks and things. But uh, yeah, it was quite a, quite a a a range of events that would fall under the title of rave in like the late '90s in the Seattle area.
0: Yeah, well, everything becomes slick eventually. Uh, I, I think these times might be it might be the the decade of being slick. No matter how underground you try to be, you, you kind of try to be slick at the same time. I think because um, we have we have the tools to make things look good, uh, but uh, fortunately, I'm a I'm a visual screw up. So when I when I do stuff by myself on my website, it looks pretty messy anyway, unless somebody comes along to to help me.
1: Well, websites are are kind of old news. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, everything everything is either a social media platform or it's an app on your phone. But the idea of going to a website is a little bit quaint these days.
0: Yeah, but people can come anyway. Mondo 2000com dot com, it's there,
1: still there. All right. Yeah. Well, what um, what relationships from you know the the period of Mondo two thousands? it's, it's pinnacle, uh, still are important to you, you know, in 2023.
0: You mean personal relationships or? uh...
1: Well, take that any way you like, any way that, uh, provides an interesting answer.
0: Okay. Um, well, I'm certainly the relationship to, uh, tech culture is still important to me. I'm still, I'm still fascinated by evolutions and robotics and, and, uh, what's going on online and, uh, there is a new excitement now around artificial intelligence, around the blockchain. Uh, our senior editor, St. Jude, was one of the people who introduced cypherpunk to the world. She named the cypherpunks, uh, you know, the, the first people to uh, develop, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, cryptography? I'm, cryptography, yeah well, they weren't the first people to develop cryptography, but uh, to to develop crypto uh, cash and, and stuff like that. Uh, the notion of total anonymity at that time uh, was associated with it, and uh, total anonymity has proved to be a bit of a chimera uh, as crypto uh, capital has evolved uh, in various forms of uh of crypto cash and NFTs and online trading has uh, been gifted to us. Um, it no longer has that pure anonymity. Uh, state actors and journalists and so forth can uh, penetrate behind those curtains uh, somewhat unpredictably, but nevertheless they can. So I'm interested in, in how those things evolved forward from uh, the mid. 90s when we knew all the cypherpunk people um, and their sort of anarcho-capitalist intentions, uh, how it how it uh, has come forward into this great messy miasma of absolute confusion. Uh, and I do have this project on against NFTs, which is a song. And I'm not really against NFTs. I'm against NFTs question mark exclamation point or period. Uh, are actually as as the people who did the virtual reality uh, for us uh, framed it. Are you against NFTs? Question mark exclamation point period. Um, so I'm I'm fascinated by all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm I'm slow to figure it all out. In some ways, I don't even want to figure it out. Uh, in many ways, I feel like whatever is happening in uh, crypto and um, and the, the generation of NFTs and all that is really a reflection. It is very similar to what happened when uh, in 2008, the online economy, uh, the financialization of capitalism nearly crashed the entire world economy. I, I think it's, it's still that same kind of fascination uh, with uh, Peculiar forms of valuation uh, that was predicted all the way back to uh, Marcel Duchamp uh, throwing out a urinal in an art gallery. Uh, if, if I might merge uh, different cultural things at the same time, um, there's been this question of, of value and capital occurring throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. And it's now been thrown into perhaps another kind of singularity where we can't predict what it will mean tomorrow or in a few weeks or in a few years. I hope I'm not making sense because it doesn't make sense to me either.
1: (laughs) Well, I have been listening to people rhapsodize about the potential of the blockchain mm-hmm. since oh, like 2012 or so. Mm-hmm. And for many years, uh, you know, people who understood blockchain technology were very, very excited about it. And, you know, they, they had this sort of mania about them. But, you know, I couldn't really get from them a concrete example of how this thing would be used in a transformative way. And, you know, other than just investing in Bitcoin and it, its copycats, nothing really caught on until the NFT craze. And mm-hmm. then it seemed like the the whole purpose of the NFT, you know, the non-fungible token, was to create scarcity where none existed. Uh, to mm-hmm. take something that could be copied infinitely, like a JPEG, and say, well, this is a particular instance of a JPEG that has uh, this identity as... Um, you know, an address on the blockchain. And if you want to have exclusive bragging rights to ownership of this particular instance of this JPEG, you know, here's, uh, here's the address, pay some money or, you know, send us some, some Ethereum.
0: And, yeah. I mean, the, 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 pecu- the peculiar thing about it is, um, you know, I hooked up as I was doing, as, I, as we did the song, I'm against NFT, uh, Mondo Vanilli, also with the punk rock singer blog, Dahlia on, on some of the vocals. Um, as we did, did that, uh, I was going to offer it as a as an NFT, of course, because that's the trickster attitude. Uh, and I, I made contact with a lot of the uh, people who really do NFTs well. And one of the things I discovered was that exclusivity isn't necessarily valued. I mean, even that is in a place of chaos. It's, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you'll be offering people an exclusive to your song and maybe you won't uh i, I evaluation uh, with nft's and and in this whole arena is even stranger than than exclusivity it's uh another lost in cyberspace kind of thing that uh you can't nail down which is marvelously psychedelic, of course. You know the the experience of psychedelia is that everything is a dance of atoms, and nothing can be uh, laid down. There are no solids, and there are no there are no solid concepts or or possibilities of ownership in cyberspace. Uh, one possibility of the blockchain that uh, I can think of is the idea that people have to supply their social security numbers to. Uh, legitimize themselves with banks and businesses. And everybody's social security numbers have been hacked by a million hackers and the Russian mafia and the National Security Agency and uh, the uh, pimply little 18-year-old guy next door and whatever you can think of. And the blockchain might be a way in which we can legitimize ourselves without uh, uh, providing hackable data to anybody uh, and therefore secure whatever security might still be available uh, for people's financial uh, data while we're still playing in that kind of arena before the breakdown of uh, everything into something wonderful, remembering that you like to be optimistic.
1: Well, not. I don't want to be unreasonably optimistic.
0: <laughs> oh, do do. Yeah, I just I just don't have okay. any
1: use for you know unhinged pessimism because there's a lot of it. It's it's yeah. very very seductive.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, you've talked about you know anonymity and the blockchain and <laughs> yeah, the the idea that this is going to be some means by which people can uh, transact with one another without the government being a party to it. That that seems fanciful. I have. You know, it's you, you have to provide a lot less information about yourself to open a bank account these days than you do to open an account on a lot of crypto exchanges. The yeah. Your customer regulations are really extreme. For one, I had to submit selfies of, you know, my my straight on face and a profile. I also had to take that. I had to take a picture of my driver's license and hold it up. And in the other hand, hold up a piece of paper with that day's date written on it so that my ID, the date and my face are all in one image. And I had to submit that. Uh, But I didn't have to go that
0: far. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This was for a South Korean exchange called Uh Uh Hotbit. And uh, another one in Singapore that I have some interaction with uh, Cake, Cake Mm. app. Um, They also had know your customer requirements that were way in excess of anything that I've ever had to produce, you know, even to get like a passport. (laughs) Yeah. So the idea that I'm anonymous to them is, is absurd.
0: Right. Well, that, well, the new idea is not anonymity, but trust. And uh, I I think that's also complicated as well. I know uh, the uh, the ideology, the, uh, the uh, positive utopian ideology between behind NFTs and the, and the blockchain, that uh, uh, that they were developing communities of trust. I mean, uh, this whole leaning on technology, I mean, Doug Rushkoff has really started to question it completely. And that, you know, your community of trust should be probably just in the flesh, you know, get outside and see some people and trust them. Um, and, and that the... Uh, the interfaces uh that we're using uh including the blockchain uh are not really the uh best way to form communities. Although I must say that uh I spend a lot of time in my home. Uh so you know I I kinda I kinda cure my own loneliness by being by being here, by being online, by being I mean, I, I just hate that Twitter is getting ruined. It was, it was my favorite. I'm still there. Come and see me. Two thousand underline Mondo.
1: That was. Are you serious? And there is more to the conversation. It will conclude in the next episode of the Realm Vault podcast, which will be Realm Vault podcast episode number four hundred and fifty-one which you can access via my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash KMO. That podcast is not available yet. It will be in the next couple of days. All right. Well, you know, I just re-listened to that conversation with Are You Serious? Took some notes. There were things that I caught on the second time through that I didn't remember hearing the first time through or didn't really focus on the first time through. The thing that stands out to me you know, just having re-listened to this conversation, or at least the first part of it, with Are You Serious, is that Mondo 2000 Magazine, which in my mind is just, you know, it's synonymous with the 90s, but really it's the early 90s, when I was in college and then later in grad school in Columbia, Missouri. Whereas Wired Magazine, Wired Magazine didn't start until 1993. And you know, here's something I remember about the early, early days of Wired Magazine. I was online in the early nineties, I was online before there was a worldwide web, which I know for some people today, that doesn't really even make sense. I mean, if there weren't web pages, if there weren't URLs, what does it mean to get online? Well, there were different ways. There were, uh, are you serious? Mentioned the well, the whole earth electronic link. Uh, I was on that, but not an active participant. Really. I don't think anybody would remember me or my participation from the well. But I was also on Lambda Moo, (laughs) Um, Moos and Mushes. A Mush was a multi-user simulated habitat, or a Mud was a multi-user dungeon. These are all text-based, like multiplayer, massively multiplayer online worlds, but with no graphics. It's all just text-based. Did a lot of those. Uh, There was internet relay chat. You know, I mentioned that in the, the conversation with are you serious but in those early days of the, the pre-web internet there was a lot of excitement but i was i was online in that period most people were not but i was online because i was at a university i didn't have a computer i didn't own a computer but i would go to a computer lab <laughs> and i would check my email and i would also you know participate in usenet news groups and um, you know and the other methods that i mentioned And so being online and being in communication with people that I only knew from online, uh, I considered myself to be a pretty online person. But there was an early Wired Magazine survey to figure out how online you were. And really what the thing was measuring was how much money do you have? Because the the most online person was the person who had a cell phone, you know, back in those days when most people did not have mobile phones you know, somebody who subscribed to uh, cable TV, basically the more money you spent each month to communicate or to get content, the more online you were. And that, I remember that offended a lot of people who, you know, felt really invested in this emerging online space, but didn't spend a lot of money on it because they were at university and it was free. But as Are You Serious, you know, lays out the timeline, The rise of Wired coincided with the decline of Mondo 2000 and really the emergence of the online reality did not compare favorably with the exotic and romantic notions that people imagining the future were, you know, were describing in the pages of Mondo 2000 magazine. The emerging reality did not match or live up to the fantasy and that was dispiriting to them. Whereas the folks at Wired, you know, they were all about business. They were all about access. They were all about, you know, being in the room with the big people, making the powerful big money decisions. And I know that's a very uh, mercenary and sort of nihilistic description of Wired magazine. I, as I mentioned, I bought the first issue on a newsstand, you know, in, in a, a bookstore in the magazine section in Japan. I spent like $30 for one, one issue with a magazine. But, you know, having picked it up and flipped through it, I was just so excited by the subject matter and by, you know, the, the writing that went into it. I, and I, you know, I was in Japan, I was working in Japan, I was making good money. $30 wasn't, you know, even though it was 1993, that wasn't a lot of money for me. But again, I could subscribe for a year, even with the overseas postage for less than that. So I did. And I stayed subscribed for many years. And, you know, for me, Wired Magazine was, it was a window into that portion of the online world that I didn't really interact with. And it was also like Mondo 2000, a dream spinner. It was talking about things happening in the near future, things that were, you know, projects that were already underway, but which hadn't come to fruition and which seemed really exciting. But as, as I mentioned and as Are You Serious mentioned, magazines used to be a much bigger deal than they are now. And I've just been thinking about the different magazines that really meant a lot to me in different periods of my life. And the very first magazine that I had multiple copies of and that, just, that introduced me to the concept of one magazine which gets published again and again with different content, so there are different issues, was a magazine called Dynamite. And it was made for elementary school children, and I got it at school. You know, we used to have these uh, these book ordering opportunities at school, and you could get magazines and posters and things like that. And I always got Dynamite magazine. I remember having multiple copies of them, and I remember being, you know, a little kid. And like guests would come to our house, and without saying what I was doing, and without mentioning it, I would just go and get three or four copies of Dynamite magazine and come and just. Like, sit on the couch and read one and have the others sitting out just to show off, look, I have multiple copies, multiple issues of a magazine. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, later, like in the 80s, the magazines that meant a lot to me, well, the, the two biggest probably were Heavy Metal magazine, which is not a music magazine. It was uh, comics. You know, it was the basis of the animated movie Heavy Metal and the various incarnations of it that came after, none of which were as good as the, you know, the first one from what was it, 82, I think. And then Marvel Comics, they had a line of creator-owned comics, you know, like Spider-Man or Iron Man or, you know, any of the, the famous Marvel characters. They're not owned by any one creator. They're owned by the corporation. And they pay different people to come in and write and illustrate stories with these characters. But the people doing the writing, they don't own the characters. But, you know, those same writers did have their own projects, their own ideas, you know, their own characters, their own stories. And they didn't really have the opportunity to publish those stories until Epic Comics, the, you know, the line, the sort of branched, like specialty line of comics from Marvel Comics came out. And there was also uh, a big glossy magazine, very much like Heavy Metal, that had a lot of adult-themed, lavishly illustrated stories in it. And that was called Epic Magazine. And Heavy Metal and Epic were epic to me. They really, uh, they fueled my dreams. They fueled my artistic ambitions. And then also in the '80s, um, magazines that meant a lot to me were like fitness magazines, uh, Muscle and Fitness, Flex, things like this. Uh, the, the Joe Weider line of, of magazines and bodybuilding products and the you know the bodybuilding lifestyle of the, the late '80s, I was into it. Of course, even before any of that, I guess around the same time that I was into Dynamite magazine, uh, I learned of such things as Playboy magazine and Penthouse magazine. And in the 70s and the 80s, you know, particularly the early 80s, that was pornography. I mean, yeah, there was uh, like in the mid 80s and afterwards, you, you did have porn videos on VHS, but I didn't have a VHS player. And even, you know, even when I got one, it was in the living room <laughs> of my mother's house. I couldn't really watch porn there. Um, so, you know, it was magazines. Magazines were the vector for pornography from my preteen or even my, you know, elementary school days. Because big shock, folks, even young boys who haven't been through puberty yet are still obsessed with sex. And uh, back in the day, catching a glimpse of a naked woman was not easily done. And when it was done, it was usually in the pages of a magazine like Playboy. Later, around the same time I was reading Mondo 2000, um, there was a magazine. I mean, it was it was running throughout the 80s. It was called Omni. And it was a mixture of science fantasy, science fact. It was pretty fluffy, not really scientifically rigorous most of the time. But, you know, it was a stimulus to the imagination again. And then Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse Magazine, he bought Omni or he somehow, maybe he owned it the whole time, but there was a time in the 90s when it was very clear that Penthouse and Omni were owned and published by the same group because they looked very similar, like they had the same fonts, the same uh, page layout templates, just you could tell these were two, two instantiations of the same project. And then later, you know, I I discovered other types of magazines, film magazines, I used to, and science fiction magazines. I used to read Starlog quite a bit. And then there was a whole host of magazines devoted to uh, gory films, like splatter magazines, things like, gosh, Fangoria, I guess, was the, the granddaddy of that genre. But, you know, Are You Serious mentioned driving a long way to go to New York City to buy magazines. And I remember. You know, I've always had family in New York City, so I've been going there since I was a child. And I remember in my teens uh, discovering that there were magazines that I could get in New York City that were not available in Kansas City, Missouri, which was where I was living at the time. Uh, One of those was called Film Threat, and it was about small independent films or horror films, or, you know, it was just films that were off the beaten track. And uh, Chris Gore, I think, is the name of the publisher. I now see him on YouTube all the time. Uh, It's kind of like YouTube has taken the place of magazines, you know, the the magazine publishers, the renegade sort of uh, underground rebel magazine publishers of the eighties and nineties have YouTube channels now, as do I. Another magazine in the same vein uh, for me anyway, as Omni and Mondo 2000 uh, and Wired was the whole earth review. I think are you serious? Mentioned Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog a couple times, but there was—I think it was—a quarterly magazine called Whole Earth Review, and it featured a lot of stories about science, science fiction, you know, speculative futurism, that sort of thing. And like Mondo Two Thousand, it had a very uh, advanced sort of uh, arty, you might say, design sensibility. And also very important, you know, in terms of uh, print was the letters pages of different magazines and in also different comic books. Like I had a, a letter. I wrote a letter to the publisher of Sandman, you know, DC comics, which got printed. It got printed in a uh, edited version. It was a shorter, shorter version on the page than, you know, what I sent them. And also you know, the, the opportunity to have your letter published in Cerebus. Cerebus was a independent black and white comic by a guy named Dave Sim, who is thoroughly canceled now for being anti-feminist. But uh, for a time, you know, that was one of these smarter comic books uh, available at the comic book store. And, you know, the people who were writing in were writing high quality content. So the letters page of Cerebus was kind of an event. It was a thing, you know, and now all of that is just gone. What remains of magazines? I mean, the only magazine I subscribe to now is Foreign Affairs. And I just do it because it's cheap. And because I like to read on paper sometimes, you know, where I can highlight and make notes in the margins and whatnot. And it persists, you know, it sits. It's an object sitting in my living space that I, I glance repeatedly and, you know, I spot it repeatedly over the course of the day. And the web's just not like that. You know, the web's in my phone. And it's always with me and it's, you know, it's expansive and everything you want is there pretty much, but it's not, it's not a replacement for magazines. And, you know, I know magazines still exist. You might have one in view right now, but they don't occupy the same space in our heads, in our imaginations, in our lives, you know, in our social interactions that they used to. And I miss them. All right. Now (laughs) back to Bard. Uh, Bard's a funny name for me for this thing, because, uh, you know, the early days of podcasts for me, the, the defining show, like the light in the darkness was the Psychedelic Salon podcast. And, you know, the light within the light was Terence McKenna, somebody who I had encountered in the pages of uh, Mondo 2000 magazine in the 90s. But Terrence is uh, often referred to as the Bard. And Bard is the name of Google's uh, large language model interface for search. And so I asked Bard, describe the impact of the reduced role that magazines play in daily life in the 21st century. And Bard responded, the reduced role that magazines play in daily life in the 21st century is due to a number of factors, including the rise of the Internet, the decline of print media and the changing way people consume news and entertainment. The Internet has made it possible for humans to access information from a variety of sources, including magazines, newspapers, and websites. This has led to a decline in the number of people who read magazines on a regular basis. The decline of print media has also contributed to the reduced role of magazines. Newspapers and magazines are facing increasing competition from online sources, and many publications have been forced to reduce their print runs or even shut down altogether. The changing way people consume news and entertainment has also had an impact on the role of magazines. People are increasingly getting their news and entertainment from social media, streaming services, and other online sources. This has made it more difficult for magazines to compete for attention. Despite these challenges, magazines continue to play an important role in daily life. They provide in-depth coverage of topics that are not always covered by other media outlets. They also offer a unique perspective on the world that can be both entertaining and informative. And then, of course, you got to do a vanity search, right? So I asked Bard, what do you know about the Sea Realm podcast? And it's funny because it gave me three paragraphs. First paragraph. The Sea Realm podcast is a weekly interview-based program featuring discussions on topics ranging from a possible technological singularity to entheogenic exploration, the relocalization of community and agriculture, and the competing narratives by which we define ourselves and navigate our world. It is hosted by KMO, who has been podcasting since 2006. I laugh because I'm pretty sure I wrote that. (laughs) I think Bard just went out into the internet, and the first thing it found is something that I wrote. Second paragraph is much shorter. The podcast has been praised for its in-depth interviews and its wide range of topics. It has also been criticized for its length and its sometimes esoteric content. That's odd. I didn't write that. I don't know where that comes from. I guess it comes from awarenessproject.org slash podcasts, which is one of only two sources listed here. The other one being podcasts.apple.com slash US slash podcast slash c So criticized for its length. That's interesting. The podcast has always been about an hour, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, you know, maybe as long as 90 minutes, but I guess those criticisms came before Joe Rogan, where the, uh, you know, three and a half, four hour podcast became quite mainstream. And then the third and final paragraph, the Sea Realm podcast is a valuable resource for anyone interested in exploring the intersection of technology, culture, and the human condition. It is a podcast that will make you think, and it is a podcast that will challenge you. Now, that's obviously very uh, complimentary, and I didn't write it. I don't recognize it. I'm guessing that came from a listener. So whoever wrote that, thank you. <laughs> and thank you to Bard for bringing it to my attention. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, as always, if you have feedback, I guess the best way to get it to me is to either go to um, patreon.com slash KMO and find the entry for this episode. It will always be free. It will not be paywalled. You don't have to support me on Patreon to access it, but you can leave a message there. All of these podcasts also get put up on YouTube, and in fact, more people access them via YouTube than they do via all the podcast platforms combined. So, finding this episode on YouTube and commenting there might be the way to go. I used to give out my email and encourage people to write to me there. My email inbox is so full of junk now, it's really easy for me to miss important emails. So, yeah, that's not the way to go anymore. Probably YouTube. YouTube's going to be your best bet. All right. As I mentioned, the conversation with Ken Goffman, aka Are You Serious, will continue on the next episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast. And we start to get into uh, culture war clashes there. Are You Serious lives in California? You know, he's been a part of the hippie scene since the 60s. He's definitely, you know, not a Republican by any stretch. And even people who can kind of hang with uh, old school Republicans are, you know, they're just allergic to Trump. And so I've noticed that you know, when I'm talking to certain people, they'll throw out really, you know, kind of hyperbolic criticisms of Donald Trump as a sort of test to see if you are, you know, simpatico with them on a, a cultural, you know, cultural or ideological level. And I'm not. <laughs> I didn't vote for the guy. I don't like to listen to him. Uh, I find his personality, you know, odious, but I don't think he's the devil. I don't think he's Hitler. I don't think he's, you know, any sort of authoritarian. And in fact, in terms of his policies, I like the fact that he didn't start a lot of new wars. Or any. <laughs> I think we dodged a bullet in 2016. Anyway, if that sets you off, you know how to contact me. All right, I'm out. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in one week's time. Stay well.